listening to the podcast of Northside Assembly of God in Crowley, Louisiana. We're in our Colossians series today. Uh, if you have a Bible or a Bible app, go ahead and turn over to Colossians 1. Of course, next Sunday is the Sunday before Christmas, so we're going to take a detour on Sunday the 20th. It'll be a Christmas-themed message that I'm I'm feeling really good about. I feel really good about that message. I feel like it's going to be very meaningful and powerful by God's grace. So uh, next Sunday, make sure you're here for that. But this morning, we're going to continue. We're going to pick it up at the end of Colossians. We're going to move forward to the next passage. My sermon title, um, I struggled with it all week. I like to try to come up with catchy titles, and I was coming up empty. So I'm taking it right out of our text. The title is Completing What is Lacking. And you'll see what that's about in a moment. But we're in Colossians 1. We're going to be in verses 24 through 29. This is a new passage for us. We've been hovering over the passage before for a few weeks. And just to give you a heads up, we're going to hover over this one for a few weeks. It's just too, there's too much going on in this passage. There's too much richness in this so we can't just skate over it. We're going to need to take our time with it. You'll see what I'm talking about in a moment. But verse 24 is where I want us to start. And this is the verse, as we read it, that I'm really going to zero in on this morning. It is perhaps one of the most puzzling verses in the entire New Testament. So Paul is writing this letter to a church, sort of like ours perhaps, in some ways, in an ancient city called Colossae in Asia Minor. These are real people with real problems, and Paul is an apostle. He is there to oversee the work of God in, in these churches that uh, he has either helped founded or he has contributed greatly to. And so look at what he says here to the Colossians in verse 24. I am now rejoicing in my suffering for your sake. I mean, first of all, that's kind of odd. I'm rejoicing in my sufferings. But watch this. This is even stranger. And in my flesh, I am completing in what, what is lacking in Christ's afflictions. Huh? What could possibly be lacking in Christ's afflictions? Come on, Paul. That's heresy, brother. That's blasphemy. Don't talk like that. We'll see what he means in a moment. I am, in my flesh, I am completing what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body that is the church. Verse 25, I became its servant according to God's commission that was given to me for you to make the word of God fully known. The mystery that has been hidden throughout the ages and generations, but has now been revealed to his saints. To them, God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery. And what is this mystery? Christ is in you the hope of glory we'll get to that in coming weeks it is he whom we proclaim warning everyone and teaching everyone in all wisdom so that we watch this this is the purpose of every church right here this is our goal this is our target this is what we want to do so that we may present everyone mature in christ for this i toil and struggle with, watch how he says this, with all the energy, is it his energy? No, with all the energy that he powerfully inspires within me. Wow. 
Now, I'm going to pray. As we pray, we're going to pray over a few people. I want us to pray over Betty and George Gerard, who just lost their grandson tragically this week. I want to pray for Bonnie Gospard, who is recovering from hip surgery. I want to pray for a few of these folks. But here's where I also want us to pray. And I'm going to say this before I begin. I need a favor from you as I preach this message. This is a tricky message to preach. It really is. It's a tricky verse that we're going to look at. And what I need from you is your full attention. I need listening ears. Try not to let your minds wander today. This is a message that's going to require you to think. You're going to have to put some thought into this. That doesn't mean it's not simple. It's actually quite simple. Everybody here should be able to understand what I'm going to say today. But it's still going to require you to think with me and track with me. So I'm going to ask you, please, if you can, for the next 20, 30 minutes, however long this takes, tune in to the whole message. You're going to, and I want you to have the posture in your heart to say, what is Jesus speaking to me today? What is Jesus speaking to us today? So let's uh, prepare our hearts as an act of worship right now. Let's pray and set aside this time for Jesus. Heavenly Father, we humbly approach you this morning knowing that you are up to something. You have a grand purpose for the world, for human society itself. It's not just a purpose tucked away for another world. It's for this world. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. There's something that you're doing right now in Crowley, Louisiana, in America, and throughout the globe. And we want to be participants in that. We want to be involved in what you're doing. We direct our prayers right now on behalf of people in our church that are hurting for Betty and George Gerard, touch them, Janelle Vincent, touch her, strengthen her, heal her. Be with the Gerards, Lord. Their hearts are hurting. Bless them with your heavenly peace. Be with Bonnie Gospard, Lord. Touch her hip and heal her. And I pray right now, along with all of my brothers and sisters in this room, this is a holy moment. This is not listening to a talking head on television. This is not listening to a man on the stage. This is listening to the Holy Ghost. We're here to do that. So we put away right now every distraction, internally, externally. We postpone everything else going on to tune into what you're saying to your church. May we hear and receive in Jesus name. Amen. Let's dig into this. Completing what is lacking. We're going to zoom in on verse 24 today. Go ahead and put 24 on the screen there. Read it one more time. I am now rejoicing in my sufferings for your sake. And in my flesh, I am completing what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is the church. It has to be one of the most troubling verses in the New Testament, isn't it? I mean, it just, do you feel it? What's going on here, Paul? And it brings to mind two questions. 
And these are the two questions I want to explore with you today. The first question is this. Why is Paul rejoicing? Because I want you to notice specifically how he says it. He doesn't say, I'm rejoicing in spite of my sufferings. Nor does he say, I'm rejoicing in the midst of my sufferings. He says, I'm rejoicing in my sufferings. In the Greek, it has the connotation of meaning, I'm rejoicing because of my sufferings. I like these sufferings. What's up with that? That's my first question. It's just weird, isn't it? It, it just strikes our ears funny, in a funny way. And, and I think that the reason why is because it confronts what I believe is a common assumption that most American Christians have. In fact, I'm going to say it this way. I believe most of us have this assumption. I believe most of you listening to this message carry this assumption with you. When I say it, you're going to be like, no, I don't, I don't want to assume that. I don't believe that. But when you actually watch the way we all live, we live by the governing principle of this assumption oftentimes. Here's what the assumption is. We assume that all suffering is bad, all suffering is evil, and humans should have a right not to go through it. And this verse confronts that assumption and shows that it is mistaken. Now let me first say this. There are many kinds of suffering that are evil, that are not part of God's vision for human life, and that humans should have a right not to go through. For example, when a person is raped, when someone's kidnapped, when a child is kidnapped, when someone's stricken with cancer, when people are starving to death. You understand these, these are not sufferings that God wants to happen. And they are not part of God's vision for the world. They are the result of a fallen world that is being oppressed by demonic powers that have been brought about by human sin. But none of these kinds of sufferings are part of God's vision for what our lives should be like. How do we know that? By looking at Jesus, who perfectly reveals the Father to us. Has that been drilled into your head enough here at Northside? He's the image of the invisible God. Exact representation of who God is. If you look at Jesus, you're looking at the Father. If you know Jesus, you know the Father. He perfectly reveals the Father. And when we look at Jesus in the Gospels, Every time Jesus encounters systems that were oppressing people, every time Jesus encounters people suffering with illnesses and sicknesses, every time Jesus encounters people who are being tortured and, and, and uh, interrogated and, and bothered by demons, Jesus shows us God's will by coming against these systems, driving out these sicknesses, and casting out these devils. This is God's will when it comes to these types of things. So when Paul writes to the Colossian church, I am rejoicing because of my sufferings. I am rejoicing in, the, in my sufferings. I want you to know he's not talking about suffering in general. And he's certainly not talking about things like rapes and kidnaps and starvation and terminal illnesses. You know, a person may Rejoice in spite of those types of things, but nobody should ever be expected to rejoice because of those types of sufferings. And that's not what Paul's saying. When Paul writes, I am rejoicing in my sufferings, he's talking about a specific kind of suffering, and you're going to see that a little bit later. But that's the first question that I want to bring up in your minds right now that we're going to deal with 
in this message. Why is Paul suffering? Here's the second thing, and I want to go back to that verse. Verse 24. Just keep it on the screen for a little bit. Verse 24. He writes, In my flesh I am completing what is lacking in Christ's afflictions. What on earth does he mean here? We read this. It's puzzling to us. How could there be anything lacking in Christ's afflictions? And I think, again, the reason why this really is puzzling, or at least one of the reasons why it puzzles us, is because it confronts what I believe is a common assumption that a lot of us have. And it's this. We assume that, okay, God loves us, yes. God wants us, yes. But we assume that in no sense does God need us. We, we say, no, God doesn't need us. God doesn't need anything. God's never in a position where he lacks anything because he's God. He ultimately gets everything he wants. And yet, Paul's saying here pretty clearly that he's suffering to fill up something that God needs him to fill up because there's something lacking in Christ's afflictions. And we're like, what? How could God need or want or lack anything? How can God ever be in a position where he's vulnerable, where he's not getting what he wants? How can that possibly happen? He's God. And, and I think where we go wrong is we assume that to need something or to be vulnerable or to lack something is a sign of weakness. And because we all know that God is never weak, we assume, well, that must mean he must never be in need. He must never be vulnerable. God never wants something that he doesn't already have. He's God. God never experiences pain. Nothing ever affects God. He's above pain. He's above lack. I've read and heard many, many preachers and theologians make these kinds of points. And they suggest that if you think otherwise, you're demeaning God. You're taking away from his glory and you're making God smaller. And I believe this mentality has had catastrophic consequences for Christians throughout history. I mean, think about this. If you really view God in this way, how does it affect the way we relate to him? You know, just put it in terms of a marriage because this will help you. Imagine being married to someone who it doesn't matter what you say, how romantic you say it. It doesn't matter even on the other side how hurtful you say it. Nothing affects them. They're like emotionally blank. There's nothing there. They're never influenced in the relationship. They're never impacted in any way. It's like being married to a rock. There's just nothing there emotionally. They're never impacted. And, and see, if you're married to a person like that, you cannot possibly be passionately, vibrantly, meaningfully related to that kind of person in a marriage. By definition, a loving relationship involves give and take. It involves mutually impacting and influencing one another throughout the marriage. But if a person's never impacted, if they're just an emotional rock, then it sucks the life and the passion out of the marriage. But you see, this is exactly how many Christians understand God to be. But here's another consequence. And, and again, think with me here this morning. If God does not need us in any sense of the word, if God doesn't need us, well, then we don't really contribute anything to God. Which means our lives are 
rather insignificant. Nothing really hangs on what we do, especially if you're the kind of person who believes that God ultimately gets everything that he wants. Well, if God ultimately is going to get everything he wants, then he's going to get everything he wants. What do I have to contribute to this thing? Nothing really hangs on what I do. So if that's the case, then the purpose of my life will be just to get saved and wait for heaven. But in the meantime, there's nothing for me to do. I mean, sure, I should be nice and be kind and all that kind of stuff, but nothing really hangs on our decisions. See, I believe this is a very wrong-headed idea, very misguided. Any picture of God that views God as being above pain and above and beyond the ability to be touched and affected by human activity is a weak picture of God. If God is the type of God who, who has to create a world where he has to have the assurance that everything will always go exactly the way he wants and he'll never have to experience pain, a God who's afraid of taking risk and he has to control everything and dictate everything and predestine everything, I'm telling you this morning that is a weak picture of God. And it's not the picture of God that I find in the Bible. In the Scriptures... I see a God, a strong God, who puts himself in a position where he allows himself to be impacted by human decisions and human activity. He gets influenced by people. It matters what people do. We see throughout the Bible, all throughout the scriptures, and virtually every book of the Bible, that God has emotions. God is a weeping God. He's a grieving God. He's a God who feels pain. He feels compassion. He expresses frustration through the prophets. Now, he doesn't have to do that. If God wanted to, he could have created all of us to be robots and programmed every one of us to do exactly what he wanted us to do. But that's not the kind of world God chose to create. God chose to create a world, and he puts himself in a position where he is impacted, where in some sense, sometimes he even needs our help. He didn't have to do it that way. We could have all been created robots, but God said, I don't want robots. I want real human people who are lovingly participating with me in transforming the world. That's what I want. But in order to have that, I've got to give them freedom. I've got to give them influence. I've got to give them some say-so because you can't be in a loving relationship with somebody unless they have the ability to choose whether to be in that relationship or not. So God chose to create this kind of world where sometimes he finds himself needing our help, requesting our help, inviting us to participate. So you read, for example, I can give you hundreds of examples. But in Judges 5, verse 23, watch this. An angel of the Lord says this, Curse Meros, curse its people bitterly because they did not come to help the Lord against the mighty. What? God needs help? Apparently so. Now, of course, he could have done this other ways. He could have totally controlled everything. But he's a God who's strong enough and secure enough to create a world where he says, you know what? I want you to be helping me in this. I want you to be partnering with me on this to help accomplish my purposes. Now, does that mean that... Uh, God's overall plan for creation is in jeopardy or hanging in the balance? No, no. Not at all. But he chooses to create a world where there are, I'm going to tell you the truth, there are certain things, there are certain plans 
that will not be carried out unless his people step up to the plate and do what he's called them to do. We've been talking the last few weeks about the centrality of Jesus and how Jesus gives us the perfect image of what God is like. And when you're fixing your eyes on Jesus, the last thing you would ever conclude is that Jesus reveals to us a God who is beyond being affected by human activity. That, that God never has emotions, that God never experiences pain, that God never experiences lack or not getting what he wants. Over and over again in the pages of the Gospels, Jesus, we see him grieved at the hardness of hearts in the Pharisees. We see him weeping at the tomb of Lazarus when, he, when Mary and Martha are, are grieving so intensely it moves him. He sees a leper on the side of the road. He sees a beggar on the side of the road. And, and he's moved with compassion. He's a God who's impacted by us. Not only that, in Jesus we also see a God who puts himself in a position where he needs our help sometimes. We're celebrating a season right now in which God becomes a human being. The Word becomes flesh. And I'm going to tell you something. That little baby lying in that manger could not feed himself, could not change his own diapers, could not look after himself, could not raise himself. God put himself in a position where he depends on a human mother and a human dad to take care of this little baby. Because he's the type of God who puts himself in that position. When Jesus is hanging on the cross and he cries out, I'm thirsty, somebody give me something to drink. We find Simon of Cyrene helping Jesus carry the cross because he can't do it on his own. Of course, if God wanted to, he could have done it totally different, but he chose to put himself in that situation because he says, I want you to get on board. I want you to be part of this. I want you to contribute to this project. And to me, that's a sign of true strength. True strength is not afraid of becoming vulnerable or not above feeling emotions or being put in a position of need when it's loving to do so. So back to the statement. Paul says, in my flesh, I am completing what is lacking in Christ's afflictions. What does he mean? What could possibly be lacking in Christ's afflictions? Before I respond to that, let me tell you what he's not talking about. Here's what the lack is not. What is lacking in Christ's afflictions has nothing to do with Christ's atoning work on the cross. When Jesus went to the cross, the sinless Lamb of God, who takes upon himself the sin of the world, in our place as our substitute, sacrificing his life, so that we can have forgiveness and salvation and redemption from the power of sin and be reconciled to the Father. When Christ went to the cross and did that, there's nothing lacking there. There's no deficiency there. Scripture, New Testament makes it very clear. We only have one Savior. There's only one Savior of the world. That's Jesus Christ. He didn't need anybody's help doing that. If you ever say anything that you agree with, you can say Amen. If you don't agree with it, just sit there silently. The New Testament makes it very clear that 
that there's only one who atones for the sins of the world. There's only one mediator between us and the Father. There's only one high priest who makes intercession on our behalf. There's only one Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. That's Jesus Christ. He didn't need any help doing that, and there's nothing lack, lacking in what he accomplished on the cross. What Jesus did on the cross is sufficient enough a trillion times over to make possible for the salvation of every human being who's ever lived. So that's not what Paul's talking about when he says there's something lacking in Christ's afflictions. Lock that in. But what is he talking about? Well, I think if we look closely enough at the text, it's right in there. So once again, look at verses 24 and 25 together. Let's look closely here. I am now rejoicing in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I am completing what is lacking in Christ's afflictions, for the sake of his body, that is the church, I became its servant according to God's commission that was given to me for you to make the word of God, say it, fully known. So Jesus' death, as I just said a moment ago, Jesus' death was a trillion times more than sufficient to set these Colossians free from their sins. And for them to be saved and reconciled to the Father. It was totally sufficient to do that. But it was not sufficient to bring this message to them. To proclaim it to them. To get them to hear it. To get them to receive it into the core of their beings and be transformed by it. What Jesus Once again, what Jesus accomplished on the sin was more than enough a trillion times over to provide for salvation. It was not enough for them to hear the message receive it, and be transformed by it. There was something lacking there. And this is why God has commissioned Paul and others to fill up what is lacking, still lacking, in the death of Christ. So here's how it applies to us. Here we are in 2020, this crazy year, crazy world that we live in, and we all see one another on social media. We all see one another in real life. And we know all kinds of people and persuasions and opinions, and it's, it's a crazy world, isn't it? It's okay to say that. It's a crazy world. What Jesus accomplished on the cross 2,000 years ago, though, is sufficient enough a quadrillion times over that every single person you ever see has an opportunity for salvation and reconciliation with God. It is possible that every person on this planet can be in a loving, life-giving, vibrant relationship with God through Jesus. That is what Christ has accomplished. But if you look around, how many of you know there's still something lacking in the world? There's still a lack that God wants to fill. And God needs people like you and me to step up to the plate, to not only hear the gospel in our minds and agree with it, but to receive it down into the inner being and let it mature us and let it grow us and let it transform us so that we can now become workers of the kingdom and spread this work of the gospel around the world. God does not do all of that by himself. No, he needs people to step in and complete what is still lacking. This is why in the New Testament, you and I, we are called God's co-workers. Paul writes this in 1 Corinthians, the one who plants and the one who waters have one purpose and they will each be rewarded according to their own labor for we are God's 
co-workers. We are called, folks, to combine our action with God's action, to combine our energy with God's energy, to conjoin our lives with God's life so that the advancement of the kingdom will grow here on earth. There really is a lack that you and I are called to fill. There really is work for us to do. So God needs us, needs us to do it, which means if we don't do it, the lack is still there. Things, there are things that really do hang on us. God's not playing charades when he tells you you are his coworker. It's not like he's pretending that you have say-so when you really don't. He's not pretending that there's a lack when there's really not a lack. It's not like he, he pretends that we're his co-workers, but really he's the one behind the scenes controlling everything, and he just makes us think that we have a part to play. Folks, God doesn't play charades. There really is work for us to do. There really is a lack that he's called us to fill, and God really needs people to step up to the plate and do what they are called to do. That, there's an important role for us to play. Amen? 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 That's why in the New Testament, you and I, we are called the body of Christ. Imagine, image that in your mind right now. Christ is the head. You and I, we're the body. A literal, physical body. Think of it that way. Christ the head. You and I, we're the rest of the body. That, that image that Paul gives us, it has a lot of different meanings we can apply. But one of them is this. Christ needs his body just like you need your physical body. What could you possibly do without your body? Nothing. I'm standing on this platform right now preaching this message to you. I could not possibly accomplish this if I didn't have a properly working body. I I need a mouth that functions the way it's supposed to. I need lips that agree with the neurons in my brain and and move in certain ways. I need a tongue that can waggle around. I need need eyes and and a head that can turn and look at all of you. And by the way, these eyes see a whole lot more than you think they do. I, I, need, I need hands that can make these gestures. I couldn't possibly communicate and accomplish what I'm called to do if I didn't have a working body. And in the same way, God is serious when he says, you are the body of Christ. There really is work for us to do. So the question is this. Will we use our say-so in sync with God's say-so? Will we conjoin our life with his life and get our life in sync with his will? Get our attitudes in sync with his. Get our actions in sync with his. Get our time and our money in sync with his will. Will we step up and play our part? God needs us to do that because there's a lack in the world that he needs for us to fill. And now perhaps you can see why Paul is able to rejoice in his suffering. Let me make something very clear to you. There's no way of following Jesus that doesn't involve suffering of some kind. I talk with guys in the way all the time. Brother Ryan, man, I had a wonderful week, man. God's good, man. He's blessed me. His presence is so great. And then a week or two later, you know, kind of down a little bit. Come on, man. What's up, man? What's, what's wrong? Is something going on? Oh, man, this, this guy in the way, he's a knucklehead. And this other guy, he snores. And this guy's making life difficult. And we all have that, don't we? 
We all got those folks, man. We all got those people. We all got those situations. And, and, and there's a unique sense in which following Jesus is going to involve some suffering, staying on the path and being willing to endure some things. Some of it's just life stuff, but some of it's real Christian suffering. We serve a Savior who was mocked, who was ridiculed, who was mischaracterized, who had his words twisted, who had his reputation smeared. What makes us think if we follow that guy, it's not going to happen to us. If we're really following him, take up your cross. He says, count up the cross. Take up your cross. Deny yourself. Follow me. So there's going to be some pain. There's going to come a point in your Christian life, not just a point. It's really the path that you walk of saying no to yourself, learning how to deny yourself and say no. And for some of you, this is the brick wall that you keep hitting. There's a part of you that totally wants to walk with Jesus, like really passionately wants to walk with Jesus. But there are other parts of you that have a hard time denying yourself, saying no. And until you are willing to walk the path of self-denial, you're not really going to grow. I'm just, I'm just telling you. And I'm not going to candy coat it. The Christian life is one of self-denial. And there's going to be suffering. There's going to be pain of some sort if you're going to follow Jesus because we live in an oppressed world. But when you say yes, when you say yes to that life, your life now takes on a meaning and a significance that you could never give it yourself. We get the honor of being the literal hands and feet of Jesus and the mouthpiece of Jesus in our community. We have the honor of Simon helping Jesus carry the cross. Now, we don't carry the cross to help him atone for the sins of the world. He's already done that. That's done. But we continue to carry on the work of the cross and apply it to the community around us. What a joy what a privilege. See, God could have monopolized all the power and just controlled it all. He could have done that. And none of us would know different. But God says, no, I'm going to give it away. I'm going to give some of this power. I'm going to give some of this say-so, this influence. I'm going to put it in the hands of human beings, and then I'm going to invite them. Why don't you join me in what I'm doing? Why don't you participate? I want you to contribute to the transformation of human society under the reign of Jesus Christ, the heavenly-born Prince of Peace. Will you contribute to this project? This, this is the greatest project you could ever give your life to. What an honor. See, this is the reward that Paul talks about. The reward is that one day we're going to look back and we're going to see the eternal ripple effects of every decision, every act of service, every act of humility, every act of denying yourself, every act of sacrificing for somebody else's sake, every hungry mouth we helped feed, every church we helped plant. You and I can't even possibly, this side of eternity, see the eternal ripple effects of those kingdom decisions. Legacy Sunday was a couple months ago. Every penny that came into the offering went to missions projects, and many of you gave sacrificially. I was, honestly, I'm going to tell you, can I just be honest with you? I was a little pessimistic going into it. I didn't tell you beforehand, but I was like, man, this is a rough year for a lot of reasons, you know? It's, it's the year of COVID. We've had some economic problems over the summer here in uh, 
Acadiana. And then we've got a lot of people who still haven't come back to church, which is the case everywhere. And I was pessimistic. I was like, I don't know what to expect on Legacy Sunday, what people are going to give. I was thinking, man, we'll be really blessed if we get about 30000 That's a, That's a good chunk. And you guys gave somewhere around $80,000. And we've, okay, yeah. Amen. Glory to God. But let me just give you an update on some other funds that we've been able to uh, contribute to. I've already told you a few things that we've been able to send checks to. Just two weeks ago, we sent a $5,000 check to Doyle uh, Jones Ministry to help plant a church in Nicaragua. And then we sent a $10,000 check to help provide 500 Bibles for 500 pastors in two nations that, where they don't have scriptures. They don't have the Bible. So imagine being a pastor and not having a Bible. I don't know how that works. How do you do that? But now these 500 pastors in 500 churches have Bibles in their own language that now they can use in their ministry because of your gift, because of your sacrifice. Amen? But understand the ripple effects. It's not just about those initial 500 people, folks. What about all of those church members? What about all those communities who now have an equipped pastor with a Bible to preach from? The people that are now going to come to Christ through these churches. The people that those folks are going to grow up and lead to Christ as well. The ministers who may be raised up out of these churches. Who are going to raise up other ministers. Who are going to raise up other ministers. This church in Nicaragua, every soul they lead to Jesus. Every person they disciple. Every person they equip to, for ministry. And the people that they equip. And the people that... You understand how this works? We don't know. We'll never know. But one day we'll know, and one day we'll see the beauty of God's glory refracted throughout all the creation, and we'll be able to say, I was part of that. I got to participate in that. I got to contribute to that. What an honor. What a joy. And so the question I want to end with is this. It's really simple, so basic. It's just, will you say yes? Will you say yes? Will I say yes to taking my life and all that is part of my life? The energy that I have, the say-so that I have, the influence that I have, and get it in sync with God and be his co-worker. And in doing that, I will help complete what is lacking in the world. Thank you for listening to this week's podcast. To learn more about Northside Assembly of God, check out our website at www.northsidecrowley.com.